So one of the ways, one of the ways that we are, uh, that our immersion in the consumer culture that surrounds us affects us in the church, and one of the ways that we don't think about so often is how it is that we see uh, it gives us really it, it gives us the paradigm that we then that we adopt to see the mission of the church in the world. I'm gonna let me read this quote. This is from a, a theologian named John Woodhouse in his commentary in First Samuel. He says this. He says, "In many ways, the business world has replaced the battlefield as the source of categories for thinking about the mission. Gospel work is not war, but commerce. We go to sell a product, not fight a battle." We're marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We're out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture territory and destroy an enemy. We make business plans, not battle plans. And the language of war, weapons, and battles is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism. We want to be more like advertisers than freedom fighters. But there's a problem with that. I mean, that's true. We do think in those terms. Uh, But the problem with that is that the New Testament is just chock full of battle language. The big problem with that is how Paul describes the mission. He doesn't talk about consumer bases. He doesn't talk about uh, customers. He doesn't talk about market shares. What he says is he talks about the weapons of our warfare, having divine power to destroy strongholds. He talks about uh, our weapons of righteousness. He says the word of God is the sword of the spirit, and that's in the context of putting on the full armor of God. All the metaphor of the New Testament is all battle language, but it's super uncomfortable for us in the Western comfort of our homes. Uh, We don't really think in those terms. And this is a really a little signal of how the Western church has lost sight of what it is we're actually engaged in. And if we lose sight of what it is we're engaged in, we'll lose sight of the real problem, the real solution. Everything can easily go downhill from there. The reality uh, is that although we can and we do, we can learn a lot from business models. I have learned a lot about church planting from business models, but ultimately that's not what we're engaged in. We are engaged in spiritual war. An eons old spiritual war that is raging right now as it always has been and, and will be until the final return of Jesus. And, and so just like, just like we know that we look back to the Old Testament to get our bearings and to understand the big theological concepts like election and redemption and sacrifice, all the foundations of all those things are in the Old Testament. In the same way, we look back uh, to the Old Testament to get our bearings and to understand the New Testament metaphors that all have their grounding in the warfare of the Old Testament. And Samuel, one here, Samuel, 1 Samuel 11, is one example of that, but it's an important one because of what it teaches us. It teaches us that the power of evil, really from Genesis 3 on, is constantly crushing in on God's people. And simultaneously, God's people are almost constantly picking up the wrong weapons to fight it. Uh, But God is ever-present to save us 
from all the little alliances and allegiances that we make with the world and the king of the world to save us uh, as we trust in his power to save sinners like us. And that's the big idea. The big idea is that when the world crushes in, God's power is ever-present to save sinners like us. Let's look at that one little part at a time. When the world crushes in, God's power is ever-present to save sinners like us. When the world crushes on in. In the ancient world, in the ancient world that these people lived in that we're reading about, just diplomacy was largely a giant game of chicken. In other words, you would be, if you were a king, you would amass a giant army and then you would send riders out to the cities surrounding you that had their own kings and their own governments and you would threaten to come and lay siege to that city and take them over or to destroy the city unless they made diplomatic terms with you as their great king. They would, become, they would be able to stay king as your vassal king, but they would pay their taxes to you, and that's how you would get your income. And so it really, for the most part, there wasn't a whole uh, lot of war because it was a big game of chicken. They would show up and say, face, face each other down and say, if you, def- if you defy us and don't come under our rule, then we'll come and destroy your city. And so a lot of times it was just obvious that they would not be able to fight that king, and so the city would make terms uh, with the great king, and then taxes would go to them. And that's kind of how the ancient world ran. It was a big, giant game of chicken, except for when it wasn't, except for when somebody wouldn't back down. And then it was siege warfare, the worst kind of war, where they would surround the city and starve the people out, run them out of water, until inside the city became really a living hell. Uh, and that is, on the outside, really the story, what's happening here. On the surface, we see the story of Nahash, the king, the Ammonite king. He surrounds Jabesh Gilead. He is um, threatening to lay in this crushing siege. And the first move of the men of Jabesh Gilead is to fold under the pressure which betrays their lack of faith in God, their lack of faith that God, their king, can save them, or even lack of faith that Saul can save them. The first thing they do is cave, fold in, and ask for terms. And then they have to come with the grips with these harsh terms that the Ammonite king lays out on them. He was going to gouge out their right eyes, which would make them able to farm but not fight. They could pay taxes, but they would be forever enslaved in a covenant relationship with this new king, half-blinded. And really, and the purpose of this, it lays out, is that Nahash really just wants to humiliate God's people and in so doing, humiliate God. And so once they come to grips with the harsh terms of the covenant that they are being forced to enter into, only then do they cry out to God for deliverance and God then sends a deliverer. But here's what's, Here's what's, here's what's happening behind the scenes. Here's what God wants us to see. Uh, Nahash, some of you Hebraists may have already guessed this, Nahash means serpent. His name is Snake. <laughs> I imagine he had an eye patch and uh, maybe rode a Harley Davidson, a scar across his face, right? Well, his name is Snake, the serpent. And he's laying a siege to... God's people uh, 
making harsh terms to humiliate them and ultimately humiliate God himself. And so the author really is wanting us to look back all the way to the Garden of Eden in the first siege where the snake comes into the garden and lays siege against God's people by offering them sensual pleasure really to be like God, to be over and above God. And when that doesn't work, the devil can switch it up and lay siege by making harsh terms and conditions and fear. And, and so, really that's what the author wants us to see, that this is one instance of many of the devil laying siege onto God's people, that the church is a city that is constantly under siege. And it plays out really in the same way every single time from the garden onward. The crush of the world, Satan comes in and crushes us, adds pressure upon the church to, to accept uh, these ideas that come from a man-centered worldview. In our desire for peace, we often fold and make little unconscious compromises of the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the world. And the ideas aren't necessarily better. They just offer peace and they offer friendship with the world. And nobody wants to live in that pressure of being at odds with the crushing forces of the culture around us. And so oftentimes, unconsciously, we just sink into these little allegiances and little alliances without realizing it. And before we even know what happened, we come, we begun, we start to be conformed to a worldview that has man at the center instead of God, which will necessarily reach different conclusions about life, about our problem, about the reality of who we are, about our identity. And we begin to make all these little concessions and we begin to be conformed to this worldview and we begin to think from a godless worldview about things like economics, about things like comfort, things like entertainment, like justice or the lack of it, about gender, about sexuality, about our status, about our wealth, about how our behavior or our various expressions of sin and pride determine our identity rather than the Lord Jesus and the Spirit who indwells us and our our. our position as God's adopted children determines our identity. And then the problem is that we eventually we realize the harsh terms and we cry out to God for help. The harsh terms, the compromises themselves are harsh terms that end up leaving us in pain and in suffering. Um, but ultimately, really what the world wants from us is not compromise. They want to crush us. They want to poke out our right eyes so that we can no longer see, so that we can no longer defend ourselves, to lay down all of our spiritual weapons and just acquiesce as vassals and servants of the king of the world. And when we see that happening, only then and then do we cry out to God to deliver us. And so what we're seeing, what you see in this passage is really the, the cycle in the book of Judges that's going over and over again. God's people rebel. They become oppressed by the consequence of their own rebellion. They cry out to God for help and God delivers them in every generation, even in every life. We see this happening over and over again. And But the point is, even though that's part of our reality, God wants to show us that it is His power 
that is ever present when the snake lays siege to us, when the snake lays siege to churches, uh, that God's power is ever present for us. That's the second part. And when the world crushes in on us, God's power is ever present with us. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to finally get, we're going to get to chapter 17, which is the story of David and Goliath. Now, David and Goliath is like the classic example that gets used all the time of how we mangle the Old Testament and in our interpretation of the Old Testament. In other words, a lot of times people will look at that story of David and Goliath and see that, uh, that we are David, that Goliath is the giants in our lives, and that the purpose, the point of that story is that we in the power of the Spirit are going to slay our giants and be heroes from God. Not what it's talking about. It's not the focus on the man. The purpose of that story is to teach us a reality about Jesus. That Jesus fights our, the giants for God, for Israel's people, and wins our freedom, wins the freedom for everybody in the power of Christ. So David is a picture of Jesus. Goliath is a picture of sin and death and the devil. And Israelites are us, standing on the sidelines, cheering. Woo! And so that's a classic example, right? Most of us, I think, at least in our tradition, in our church, we know that. But the, but the reality is we still do that in other ways. In fact, we do that when we think about Saul. We always think in terms of, right, we think Saul is the bad king and David is the good king. How many of you think like that? I do. But listen, listen to what happens with Saul, the bad king, in this story. The Spirit of God rushes upon him, fills him with righteous indignation and power to defeat God's enemies. He is able then through that spirit power power to unite all of Israel together, which is a momentous thing in that tribal, uh, tribal period that they live in. He unites all of God's people together with echoes, it really echoes back to the judges uniting people together, except now... Uh, Saul is being presented not just as a, a regional judge, but like a super judge over all of Israel, backed by God's power. And then he wins this total lopsided victory over the Ammonites. There's one verse to describe the victory of, of, of Saul over the Ammonites, and then another verse to show its totality, that not even two Ammonites were left together to show that God's overwhelming power was behind Saul to completely devastate the siege of snake upon the city of Jabesh Gilead. And then at the end, Saul comes out and gives credit to God for the whole thing. He worships and praises God. He says, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel today when people are trying to give him the credit for it. That, that doesn't sound like Saul. That does not sound like the guy that was hiding in a suitcase last week, does it? It does not sound like Saul, the bad king. That really sounds like David, the good king, right? I would expect all those things to be said of David. But when you study, when you look closely at the story of David, what do you see? Anger, vengeance, adultery, murder, pride. See, the reality is, it's not Saul's the bad king, David's the good king. The reality is that both Saul and David failed in the kingship, ultimately. Now, there's some differences, for sure. David repented. 
And that made him, his repentance is what differentiated him from Saul. Saul did not repent. Saul drove his rebellion and pride right into the ground. But ultimately, they both failed only in different ways. And that is really what God is trying to bring out in this story by having Saul win this victory. That it is that salvation is never about the man. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Spirit of God who is winning salvation for his people even through these unlikely means even through the wrong king that they chose, they never stop being an object of his affection and mercy and he wins the victory for them through this less than perfect man to prove and show that one point, that it's not the man, it is God and the Spirit of God who saves. And do you know what that means? What that means for us? It means it doesn't matter who the king is. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who is in Congress. It doesn't matter who controls the Supreme Court. Uh, It doesn't matter who controls the university system or the media. It doesn't matter who controls Hollywood. It doesn't matter how surrounded or embattled we are. It doesn't matter who your boss is. It doesn't matter what job you have, your education, ultimately. It doesn't matter what race you are or what gender you are. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because God is ever-present with us to win the victory over Satan. And in the ultimate sense, he already has. Maybe the most bizarre thing about Saul in this chapter is uh, something that's brought out by the theologian uh, Diana Edelman in her, her book on the history of Saul. She points out the coronation rituals of the Old Testament and Old Testament times had these three different aspects. The king apparent was anointed. Then the king apparent was put through a test. And then the king having survived or accomplished or won that test and the king was installed before God as the ultimate king. Which means that Saul, in this chapter, Saul is playing the picture, is God's intended picture of Jesus. Of Jesus who was anointed in his baptism. Of Jesus who immediately afterward was sent into the wilderness to be tested as the second Adam and was tested through his whole life by suffering all the way through the ultimate of the cross. And having won that test, he was then installed before God through his ascension into heaven as our king, as the true and right king of Israel. Saul, And so what that means is, because he's already done that, ultimately what it means is if we belong to Christ, uh, that Jesus, our King, is in heaven right now protecting us. And that means that we are, even now, immortal. We are invincible. The worst thing anyone can do to you is glorify you. (laughs) Think about that. That's the worst. And in the meantime all the lesser things that people can do to us, God promises to use to strengthen us, to glorify himself and to advance 
his kingdom. In China, they don't care about prison because they see prison as an opportunity for evangelism and, a, and, a, and, and, and the advanced school of sanctification. You can't even be a leader in the church so you do three years in the joint in China. They don't trust you. Why? Because their hearts are so set on the things of Christ. They're just not tripping on the things of the world or the things that you lose out when you go to prison for three years. Now, I'm not saying y'all should go to prison <laughs> unless it's for representing Christ. But the point is, ultimately, Jesus has won the victory. And because of that, we are immortal. We are invincible. No one can hurt us. The worst they can do is glorify us. And anything that happens in between will glorify God, strengthen us, and advance the kingdom as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus. And even in the here and now, what it means is we don't have to make all these little allegiances with the world that presses in on us. Even now, it means that we can try to consciously uncover and really think hard about all the little allegiances that we've made with the devil over and above God's wisdom how we have allowed the devil to tell us who we are over and above what God says is true about us. How we have allowed the devil to tell us what will make us fulfilled and happy and enriched over and above what God has told us will make us fulfilled and happy and enriched. We can found our identity in who Jesus is and not in our behaviors or aberrant desires or sin or pride or anything else. That's the salvation that we have. So the only question is, who is this salvation for? Is it for the righteous people? Is it for the the good guys in this story? The good guys think it's just about them, but it's not. The reality is that when the world crushes in to God's power is ever present to save sinners like us. That's who this is for. Listen, listen to what is happening in this story. At the end, so at the end of chapter 10, I started out by talking about these guys at the end of chapter 10 who said, uh, after Saul hid in the suitcase, they, you know, most of Israel drug him out. They said, wow, he's good looking. What a great king. Long live the king. But there was, a, there was some of the guys, some of the men of the elders of Israel who said, some, and, and they're described as worthless fellows, that says, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Now what's funny about that is that, the, the, that worthless, when it says worthless fellows, that's a super derogatory term. And yet, it's funny because they're the only guys that rightly get what Saul's all about. They call him out. Everybody else is, he's good looking, long live the king. There's some guys who are like, how is this idiot going to save us? And yet they're the ones, they're the ones who are called the worthless fellows. How is that possible? It's because there's a separation being made between, God, between Saul and his person He's worthless. But Saul in the office, representing the office of the king of Israel, he's representing God. 
And as we're seeing in this chapter, God can and does empower him to bring deliverance for Israel. And so really, they're called worthless fellows because in rejecting God's king, they're rejecting God as well. Even David, at the end of his life, he continues to talk about Saul as the anointed of the Lord, refuses to kill him himself, even though he has multiple opportunities because he's the Lord's anointed, will not, and wait, he waits, even though he knows he's the heir apparent, he waits until God makes it happen, honoring that office. And so, here's what's happening. All the good guys... They want to go get those worthless guys, the worthless fellows, and punish them since God had won the victory in Israel. But Saul, probably in his finest moment through all these chapters, he offers them amnesty. And he says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So on the face of it, what do we see? On the face of it, diamonds, just right in the sand to pick up. We see God works this amazing salvation in Israel and then the king, who's a model of Jesus, offers amnesty to all the real sinners in the crowd. So we see from that God's victory over sal- God's victory wins salvation and the result of that is amnesty and forgiveness for sinners, right? That's good news. That's us. But it goes even deeper than that. And we don't get it because we're not ancient Hebrews and we don't know ancient Hebrew history. But if there was to be a news story tomorrow that said uh, all of a sudden there, there, a news story tomorrow in the papers that accounted for or told the story of a massive revival that had broken out and huge humanitarian help that had broken out from North Korea or from Sudan or from Eritrea or for some other place that's not known for Christianity or for good works or for humanitarian aids, we would be shocked, right? Because we know the history of those places. And that's what's happening here. If we were an ancient Israelite, if we were an ancient Hebrew, we would know all the history of all the players in this story. And the, the background, the historical background of this story is the end of the book of Judges, Judges 19 through 21 where there is a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin and Israel uh, and one of their cities who become so wicked that the author of Judges presents them as having become even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses the same language to echo everyone's minds back to that story. They do basically some of the the same things. Uh, They kill a woman. They abuse this woman. And it's all is brought out that this city of Israelites has become so depraved that they are now worse than all of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the city was Gibeah of Saul, (laughs) Saul's hometown, the people who were coming to the rescue. Which means that either Saul's father or possibly grandfather was one of those people in that original rebellion who were defeated. Saul comes from that line of super sinners in Israel. And in that same story, there's one city that refuses to join Israel in fighting the bad guys, and that city is Jabesh Gilead, the city where these men are sieged in. So what he's trying to pop out is that is this, that if you were an Israelite 
and you were reading this story, you would marvel at two big things. First, you would marvel at the fact that these cities were involved and that it wasn't just good guys and bad guys in this story. It was all bad guys. It was super bad guys, the worst of the worst of Israel. And then the second thing you would marvel at was how God had redeemed all of them and transformed all of them. They were his people, and so he saved and he redeemed and he restored them. When we get a little farther in in the next chapter, Samuel says this to the Israelites. He says, Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit and cannot deliver, for they are empty. But the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And that's... Israelites would have marveled over that, and we should too. That's God's promise to us uh, and God's wisdom for us. He's saying, don't make allegiances with the world. Don't pick up these empty things that will not pay off because they're empty. And then it says, and do that not because you're afraid that God will drop you if you do, but do it because you know that he won't drop you that he has saved you for his own pleasure. He has saved you for, the, for his great name so that he can display his mercy and his goodness uh, and put it on display for all of the powers of the heavenly realms really to see. And so that means when we understand that, when we understand that God will not drop us, it changes everything about religion. It makes it stop being about self-preservation and makes it all about worship. We are worshiping and praising a God who has saved us and will not let us go. A God who, even though he knows we're going to make allegiances with the devil, he's going to break those allegiances and save us. And he's not going to do it once. He's going to continue to do it for us. And so that we know, even though we're a city under siege, we don't have to fold and compromise with the enemy but we know our deliverer is coming decisively to save us at the end of the day. And ultimately, that means that we can sit tight even though we're under siege and we can, jo- we can rejoice as we wait patiently for that day to come. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and it is a blessing to us. Lord, it is true, we... We unconsciously believe the lies of the devil all the time. Lord, in the, in the church, in the Western church, we have unconsciously bought into so many things that are not according to your wisdom. And so we pray that you would be merciful to us, Lord, in rooting them out. Help us not to just see our sin and acknowledge our sin, Lord, but in a real maturity and growth of our faith, Help us to hate our sin. And Lord, we pray um, that you would help us to trust you, that we would believe your word. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice knowing that you are our king and that as we trust in you, that you will not let us go. Uh, You will not let snake win the day. 
Uh, but we can look forward to that day when you come to save us, Lord, and help us to f- remember that and rejoice in it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.